church? Hell no. Are you no longer feeling comfortable in church? This podcast is for individuals who are desperately missing God, but don't know how to find Him. Substance abuse, domestic violence, sex offenses, acrimonious divorce can contribute to discomfort in the church. For these individuals, church is just not an option anymore. Ordained minister Dennis Hall and his guests invite you to listen to this podcast for topics that are inspiring, uplifting, and will bring hope to those who just feel church is not relevant in their lives today. I'm Dr. Dennis Hall, and we're delighted that you're listening to this podcast today. You know, if you've been listening to the news over the last three weeks, then you know that a train carrying at least five rail cars of vinyl chloride derailed in East Palatine, Ohio. It's been all over the news. Uh, The liquid in these cars and, frankly, other cars on that train that were carrying highly uh, toxic chemicals were drained off into a ditch, and they were set on fire. And a huge uh, mushroom cloud uh, formed over this city of 4,800 people, and uh, many people began to report respiratory symptoms like shortness of breath, along with neurological symptoms like headaches and uh, uh, dizziness and and similar things. You know, the CDC uh, says that high levels of vinyl chloride has been associated with liver damage and cancer and other problems. Now, as I've watched the news, I mean, even yesterday, public officials in in this town, East Palatin, Ohio, uh, were reporting that the the quality of the air is safe and that the the municipal drinking water was safe to drink. However, when it comes to the private wells, the citizens were advised Don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. See, chemicals can seep down into uh, water sources. They were saying don't drink the water until it's tested, until it's tested. You know, um, it occurs to me that with so many of us accustomed over the decades of relying on municipal water supplies, we don't know a lot about wells. And uh, the Environmental Protection Agency tells us there are 23 million households in America that rely on private wells for drinking water. It's estimated that more than 120 million people uh, rely on these wells, unregulated water sources, for their drinking water. Now, I don't know how many residents in uh, East Palatine, Ohio, are dependent on well water for their water source. Uh, but my guess is because this is a somewhat of a uh, of a rural area over in East Ohio and right on the line there in western Pennsylvania, that there's a lot of people that are depending on well water. You know, when I was a child and uh, a young child growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents uh, who had a home up in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And they and all of their neighbors depended on wells for their water. Now, my grandparents had a drilled well 
and water was pumped into their home uh, by an electric pump. But some of the neighbors had what's called driven wells. That means they drove a pipe down into the ground. Uh, usually it was only around 30 feet deep and uh, to connect into a, uh, you know, a surface aquifer. And that's how they got their water. And then there were other neighbors, and I always found this fascinating as a child to go visit those neighbors who were nearby, had wells that were either dug by hand or dug by a backhoe. And just like you would see in some of the old pictures, they would have a well and, and a bucket out there where they'd have to lower down in the wells. Sometimes these wells were only 15, uh, maybe 20 feet at the most deep. Now, these kinds of wells were highly susceptible to contamination, as well as the driven wells. Uh, and then there were in, uh, other neighbors in that area who got their water from uh, natural springs. And uh, when I would go with them down to get their water out of a natural spring, uh, you know, you, you might see frogs and salamanders and other things on the edge of the springs. And that's where they got their water. And uh, these people kept, you know, buckets of their well water or their uh, or their uh, spring water in their kitchen in a bucket. And there was always some kind of a dipper there where people uh, living there could dip their, their drinking water. Now, you know, having access to water is critical to the life and health of people. You know, people can go weeks weeks without eating uh, but humans can only survive a short time a short amount of time without water usually three or four days you know the body needs water for almost every process in our in our body you know the the water is essential to help uh, the body uh, get rid of the toxins from the cells and excrete those toxins out of the body through urine and breath. And, you know, without water, the body really can't do this. Uh, at least it can't do it very efficiently. And then toxins begin to build up, and, and then uh, those toxins begin to impact the, uh, the, the kidneys, uh, which is the major organ that removes uh, toxins from the body. And when the uh, kidneys fail the toxins begin to build up even farther, causing all kinds of widespread organ failure and eventually death. You know, dehydration can occur quickly and, um, you know, it begins to uh, cause symptoms like sluggishness and headaches and dizziness and confusion. Even heat stroke and cramps uh, uh, begin uh, when the body can't be regulated. The temperature of the body can't be regulated because it's not taking in enough water. You know, swelling in the brain can occur and uh, sharp changes in blood pressure and even seizures occur when a person is uh, becoming dehydrated. And so, you know, eventually a person goes into shock and becomes uh, unresponsive and can even die. Um, you know, many doctors recommend that uh, we drink eight glasses of water a day to have healthy 
hydration in our bodies. Now, I say all this to sort of give us an insight into when a calamity occurs, like has occurred in uh, East Palatine, Ohio, where there's a, a worry and concern about contamination of the water. Uh, this is why people really almost become hysterical over their water sources because it absolutely is critical uh, to our life. You know, uh, the uh, hydrologists, you know, the experts at water, hydrologists, they tell us that there's a thousand times more water under the surface than all the water we see in the rivers and the lakes and the ponds, uh, that that is minuscule compared to the water under the surface uh, of the earth. And, uh, and, but, and the but is, that water under the surface can become contaminated, especially with chemical spills. Now, you know, when we go look at the scripture, uh, we can see how critically important wells, water wells were from the very early history of uh, Israel. In fact, if you owned a well, you basically uh, owned and possessed all the surrounding uh, property, uh, you know, the, the whole country, if you owned that well. You controlled everything in that area just because you owned the water source, the well. It's interesting to read Proverbs 5, 15 uh, through 17 that taught the, uh, uh, you know, the nation of Israel. It, it reads, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. That's how precious water was. And uh, frankly, it's it's how precious water is today. I mean, there are our lawsuits today in courts over water sources here in in the United States, and then over in the you know Genesis sixteen, uh, we find an angel uh, approaching the mistreated Egyptian slave Hagar by a spring in the desert. It's it's interesting these uh, uh, these divine encounters that occur in Scripture where there is a water source. And then over in uh, in Genesis 22, we find Abraham complaining to an adversary about the seizure of his well. Uh, they finally had to reach a, uh, a treaty and an agreement uh, to give Abraham access to this well uh, that became known as the Bersheba well, the Bersheba Treaty. Uh, and then... In uh, Genesis 26, we see Isaac quarreling with his adversaries over access to a well. And then in uh, in, uh, Genesis 29, we find Jacob encountering uh, shepherds who are watering their sheep out of a well where the mouth of the well is covered by a large stone which has to be removed to water the flocks and then put back in place after the flock was watered. Now, 
it just seems to me that this is likely sort of an early form of contamination prevention, protecting that well when the water was not uh, needed. And then over in Exodus, Exodus 2, we find Moses protecting the daughters of Midian who had come to a well uh, to water their flocks. And shepherds there had, had kept them from having access to the well. And Moses stepped in and protected uh, these women's rights to water their flocks at this well. Now, it's interesting to look back over all these mentions uh, regarding wells in the scripture and realize that, you know, in almost every incident, there was some form of divine intervention taking place where a water well was involved in scripture. Now, having said all that, I think we would all agree, any of us that knows anything about the Bible or scripture, we would all agree, you know, there is no well, no water well anywhere in the world that's had a greater impact on mankind than that source of water known as Jacob's well and what took place at Jacob's well. Now, you know, John or, you know, five and six, he tells us that uh, that Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. And it was near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, uh, Joseph. And uh, so Jacob's well was there. Um, they had to have water. A well had to be done. And Jacob's well was there. And so the scripture tells us that uh, Jesus was tired from his journey with his disciples, and he sat down by the well. It was about noontime, hot in the middle of the day. Now, this was a small town. Now, when we call it a city, we are loosely referring to a city. You know, it, it uh it's just an area where people live. Maybe it'd be better to call it a village, but the scripture refers to it as the city. And, uh, you know, it, it adjoined the land uh, that Jacob gave to Joseph. Now, the Old Testament is silent about why Jacob, why and when Jacob dug this well. But today, it's one of the few biblical sites about which there is no dispute among theologians and archaeologists uh, about the existence of Jacob's well and and where it came from. You know, there's it's probably the only place on the face of the earth where we can draw a circle around Jacob's well and know for a fact that Jesus at one time stood and sat within that circumference. You know, it's uh, that church that that well still exists today. I mean, it, uh, it it's really uh, inside the church of Saint 
Fatina that was built in the AD 380. and and has set over this well for all these years. Now, this well today is what we would call a wet weather well. In other words, that well is dry except for for uh, when rains come. The well is dry. Today, it's only about 60 feet deep or so. And it's admini- uh, administered uh, by the Greek Orthodox Church, which, uh, which oversees this uh, uh, Church of St. Patina. And you can visit the well today. You can go to that well on the West Bank in uh, Israel, visit the Church of St. Patina, and see the well, Jacob's well. Now, the scripture tells us that Jesus was sitting by the well, tired from his journey in the middle of the day, and uh, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. We don't know her name. She's unnamed in the scripture, and she's unnamed to this day. We don't we don't know her name, you know. But there would have been several strikes against her in this in this event that's beginning to unfold in the scripture. First, you know, a Jewish rabbi would not be initiating you know, some kind of a discussion at all, let alone a theological discussion with a with a woman in a public place such as a well, or frankly, any other place in that day, you know? And strangely, she was alone. You know, typically, women didn't go to a well alone by themselves. It was not the custom for women to be out in the day alone going to a public place, but she was alone. And some think, you know, perhaps it's because she was being ostracized by her own people. They didn't want to be around her because of the life she lived and her background and the things that she had been involved in. And, um, you know, it was an odd time of the day, in the heat of the day at noon. Now, why would a woman come alone in the middle of the day, a Samaritan woman, to draw well water. Now, you know, Jewish men would not speak to a woman in a, in a public space, place, but Jesus, a Jew, spoke. He initiated the conversation. He spoke to the woman. He spoke to the woman. Jewish men didn't do that, especially a Samaritan woman. And he initiated this conversation because he was going to help her identify a thirst she had in her life that she didn't even realize. And what did Jesus do? He merely said to me, said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into a town apparently to, to get some food and some other necessities. And, um, you know, Jesus was sitting there. He didn't have anything to draw water with and, a bucket, a rope, and uh, and she she answered him. She said, uh, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why? Jews considered Samaritans half breeds; that they were not Jews. Uh, they they felt like some of them worshipped gods." other 
than their God. And, and so they were outcasts. Samaritans were outcasts. And so, but Jesus answered her with a statement that would confuse her. He said, you know, if, if, you, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, and who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Living water. And uh, a Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman looks at him and almost mockingly says, well, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. And by the way, where do you get this living water? You know. And so here we have the Samaritan woman sitting right there in front of the Son of God. And she's beginning to see that uh, he is telling her some things that are revelations. You know, I, I love to walk on the beach when I'm in Florida, and I usually take my dog out at daylight uh, to walk on the beach because I love to watch the sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, a couple of days ago, I was out there, and I ran into a guy that I see frequently on the beach, and the sun had just risen. It was just barely above the horizon. And he said to me, you never get tired of seeing this, do you? And I said, no, you don't. And I said, most people don't even fully grasp the significance of watching that sunrise. I said, it's kind of like God. I said, you know, God is all around us and, and manifests himself in so many ways. And just like so many take the sunlight, sunrise for granted. They take God for granted. All the manifestations of God that they take for granted. And so that's what we're seeing in this story. You know, here's this woman sitting with the Son of God, and she does not fully grasp what is taking place. So Jesus continues on, and he takes this woman on a theological uh, journey, and he says to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see... He's talking about something totally different. He's taking her out of the mundane thirst for the H2O, the water, into the realm of a deeper thirst. You know, uh, uh, thirst for water is one of the most intense cravings of, of humans. And uh, what he was saying to her, there is a thirst that's even greater than the thirst for water. So all of us have things in life we thirst for. You know, sadly, some people thirst for money and others for fame, others for sexual pleasure, others for power. And then I think really almost all of us are thirsting for meaning, meaning in our lives. You know, this Samaritan woman, 
she was having difficulty uh, understanding him. And she asked Jesus to give her this water that she may not thirst and have to come to the well. You see, she, now she was beginning to ask questions. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when we're confronted with the presence of Jesus? We begin to ask questions. She wanted to know, well, where is it, you know, uh, you know, where is it that I can get this living water that I may not thirst and have to come to this well? Jesus was graciously introducing her to the Messiah, to Jesus himself, the Son of God. So what he did, he tested her a little bit, he, her commitment, honesty, and he said, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. I have no husband. And this is when Jesus reveals his power to her. And he begins to demonstrate his sovereign discernment. And he says, you have said, well, I have no husband. Because you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. You know, it seems today that just like a Samaritan woman, we have trouble coming to grips with the fact that God knows everything. There's nothing we can hide from him. He knows everything about us. He knows what's happened to us in the past, what's happening to us now, what's going to happen to us in the future. He knows that the bad decisions we've made, the sins we've uh, committed, he knows everything about us. He he is... Uh, uh, you know, the supreme ruler and creator of the universe who knows everything about his uh, creation. And, um, you know, the woman eventually says to Jesus, she says, well, I, I know that the Messiah who is called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So, again, uh, what we're seeing is just the way we behave today. You know, we know about Jesus. Uh, and as I said earlier, most seem to take him for granted. And, uh, and we don't even recognize the miracles that are all around us. And we seem to be just holding on desperately with these little elements of doubt. And then Jesus eventually, he says to the Samaritan woman, he reveals who he is. He says to the woman, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. That's pretty direct. It is I. It is me, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. You know, there are moments in our life when Jesus makes it clear to us that he is the Son of God, the one who rules the universe with his Father. Now, I would just ask you today as you listen to this, when Jesus makes himself known to you, do you do what the Samaritan woman did? The Samaritan woman went directly into the city and told everyone about Jesus, how he knew everything about her and how he talked about the living water. Now, 
it seems to me, just as is happening in uh, just as is happening in East Palatine, Ohio, uh, that most of the people in our society, when it comes to Jesus and the living water, are shouting, "Don't drink the water! Don't drink the water!" You know, it's just amazing to me as I look around and sometimes even hear people in seminaries or people in pulpits or other influential personalities uh, uh, talk about things that cause me to want to shout, uh, don't drink the water. You see, we go to churches and ministers and other influential people to hear about Jesus and the living water, and sometimes we are given contaminated water. Now, what am I talking about? Well, first is the idea that Jesus is just a, a great guy, you know, a wise teacher, a loving leader, a, a divinely inspired uh, prophet, but that he's not the Son of God. Now, you might think that this idea is uh, limited to some people who are agnostic or atheistic, but I can assure you that there are people in some seminaries who even have these kind of ideas. You know, this kind of idea depicts uh, Jesus as something less than uh, the eternal God, part of the Trinity, who created and rules the universe. You know, Jesus referred to himself as God. He told the Samaritan woman, I am he. You know, he's, he received worship as, as God. His disciples taught that he is God. There's no question. Jesus is the son of God. Now, second is this idea that the Bible is uh, just a great book that could be really helpful, but that it's not to be taken too literally or too seriously. And, you know, many, uh, you know, will assert that the Bible was probably inspired by God on some level, but there are many errors, corruptions, and myths. And, uh, you know, many think that the Bible was written for a certain time and culture, and therefore it's not relevant for our world today. You know, we can choose a lot of topics that we could talk about in podcasts, and I have talked about it in several podcasts, uh, where people uh, will read something directly from the Bible and just say, that doesn't apply today. That just doesn't apply today. Well, the truth is, the, the Bible is an accurate record of what was written now centuries ago and has proved to not have any meaningful errors in it. The Bible itself teaches that the words of Scripture are the very words of God, and they're meant to be authoritative in our lives. Now, third is the idea that God's going to be good to everyone. You know, that the but the Bible, well, the Bible teaches that the only way to make it to heaven is by recognizing your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It teaches that if you deny Jesus or ignore Jesus 
or believe in Jesus in ways other than what's taught in the uh, scripture or choose another path besides Jesus, you are not going to heaven. And when you die, you are going to be separated from God for eternity. Now, fourth is the idea that, um, you know, tagging on to this, that just everyone's going to go to heaven. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches that no how hard we try to be good, we will never be good enough on our own. It teaches that, you know, every human being is infected with sin, and even the good things we do are tainted by sin. You know, as I said earlier, the pathway to heaven is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and asking to be forgiven of our sins. Now, the last thing I might talk about here is the idea that Christians will be healthy and wealthy. Now, this idea is often called the prosperity gospel, uh, where many people believe that the health and wealth are ways of God rewarding those who are faithful to him in this life. Now, you know, the Bible never promises a life of ease and fortune to those who are faithful. Uh, you know, it never, it never promises that. And, and likewise, it doesn't say that you're going to have a life of difficulty and pain if you're unfaithful. It doesn't say either one of those things in the Scripture. And there's no biblical reason for a Christian to expect physical, worldly blessings for faithfulness. Or, on the other hand, uh, anticipate worldly difficult if you've been unfaithful. Let me tell you what Jesus does promise. He promises us that we will have a sense of peace beyond all earthly understanding if we place our faith in him. Now, as I conclude this podcast today, just let me say this to you uh, for listening today. You know, when it comes to non-biblical ideas. You know, our test should be what the Bible teaches. If it's not what the Bible teaches, then it's heresy. Just plain heresy that are not biblically sound. And as I said, when we hear those things and they're not biblically sound, we should be shouting, don't drink this water. Don't drink this water. When it comes to the living waters of Jesus Christ, His promises, drink all the water you can. It's not only safe, but is the pathway to eternal life. May God bless you today, and thank you for listening.